bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. I think it was last year I covered, uh, maybe late last year, or maybe last spring, would have been the springtime. Uh, I did a story on this commercial fishery in eastern Canada, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, takes place on the rivers. And it's a commercial and indigenous harvest of the American eel. Now, they're not harvesting adult eels. They're harvesting the baby eels. They're, they're tiny. They're translucent. Uh, they're also known as glass eels. And these little stages of these, like I'm, I'm talking little, like a, like a spaghetti noodle, but maybe just the size of um, like a little garden worm. Not a big, huge dew worm, but just the smaller ones, maybe two and a half or two inches long or something. Uh, so they're called elvers. And I did a story about this uh, last spring. So uh, spring is the time they're running in the rivers or, or the elvers have hatched. I don't quite understand the biology there. But anyways, there's a congregation of people on uh, the rivers in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick uh, to fish these things. So they're captured live in uh, like dip nets uh, and <clears throat> and it looks like they have these structures that they put in the water that they swim into uh, kind of net type things and then they probably can't get out uh, kind of like a set uh, like a set net and so these elvers uh, are flowing to Asia and they're growing into adult eels and then they're killed for food so it's it's a big industry so these elvers last year were going for $5,000 a kilogram. This year, apparently, the price is around $4,000 a kilogram when caught legally. So when there's a legal channel and a commercial license and chain of custody, um, they're getting top dollar for them in the market. Uh, there's a black market, and, and I'll talk about that. In a second. So, anyways, this year's uh, season went forward, and uh, the season started. And then, by I think it was around the beginning of April, and not too long after the season started, uh, the federal government, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, signed off on a ministerial order, as as I understand it, closing the season in mid-April for 45 days because of the escalation of violence on the rivers in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and illegal fishing. To date, uh, DFO officers have seized um, elvers from poachers that are worth uh, around a million dollars of seized uh, fish so far, or fish, eels, sorry. Now, last year I did, I covered this story, and I think I covered it a couple of times, and one of the, one of the aspects of it is there had been an, uh, a poaching case that DFO had caught. They had all these live elvers, but because they didn't know exactly where they came from, they did not want to go release them into a body water, a, a water body that those elvers weren't from. 
Um, so all of these little elvers were um, killed. Uh, I, I think it's sort of like for genetics, uh, knowing their natal waters in order to come back and spawn, uh, disease stuff, genetics, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, they weren't certain where they came from. I don't know what happened with this million dollars worth of uh, seized elvers, what the DFO is doing with them. They, uh, I think they come in a couple of seizures. I saw one uh, that was around half a million dollars, and, and then they've got more that's uh, estimate up to a million dollars worth of, of uh, elvers. So this, is, this has made everybody upset. The commercial fishers and the First Nations are upset about this closure. There's been statements made in the news uh, that the commercial fishers are upset because it's basically DFO is shutting down or the minister shutting down the fishery uh, because DFO can't get control of the illegal poaching. So they've, they've penalized everybody and shut down the commercial fishing as well. So uh, there is First Nations who have commercial licenses as well. This has a bit, been a bit of an issue in uh, on the East Coast. Uh, and there's also First Nations that fish for FSC, food, social, and ceremonial purposes. And the First Nations ha want the season either reopened or they want compensation for what they would have caught. So these are, I'm assuming, would be the commercial licenses held by uh, First Nations. So a bit of the bit of backstory here, because um, what I'm trying to figure out is who's poaching and where is this violence and, and stuff going on on the rivers, because it's not overly well laid out in the news stories. I think uh, journalists are trying to be, um, you know, very careful in, in what they say. So I think there, in in my read of the entire situation, there is a lot of animosity between non-Indigenous commercial fishermen and First Nations, both uh, commercial, commercially held licenses by First Nations as well as the FSC Indigenous fishers. So last year or two years ago, um, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia took 14% of the commercial licenses and transferred them to First Nations. Um, commercial license holders were not. So I think this 14% of the quota uh, was transferred to First, Nation, First Nation licenses and the commercial, the non-Indigenous commercial um, license holders were not compensated for the reduction in quota. So that's, you know, been start of this animosity between the indigenous and non-indigenous uh, license holders here. Last year, there was a commercial, a non-indigenous commercial fisher um, was, went to court and a judge issued an injunction order to stop indigenous fishers who were coming into the licensed area that this commercial operator had, um, threatening, harassing, um, blocking nets, 
um, intimidating, you know, all this kind of stuff and fishing where the commercial license holder was licensed to fish. So a judge ruled in favor last year of this commercial fisher and um, put this injunction order in place to stop the indigenous people that were coming to the river. And a lot of this is done at nighttime, which complicates uh, the scenarios of of what's going on, even from an enforcement perspective. And so the injunction order um, was on April 29th of last year. Uh, the defendants being the indigenous fishers were ordered to stop threatening, coercing, harassing, intimidating the plaintiff and the plaintiff's fishers. Uh, the defendants were ordered to stop fishing in the designated water courses uh, of the commercial fishing license, and they were uh, ordered to stop ordering, directing, persuading, aiding, abetting, and encouraging others to fish in the defendants or the uh, plaintiff's uh, commercial licensed area. Then a affidavit was filed almost within days of the judge's injunction order uh, claiming that the defendants were right back the the very day the judge made the injunction order were back on the river um, fishing and threatening the uh, the commercial fishing holders um, um, workers uh, when when they're trying to fish some of the indigenous fishers, elver fishers, have said they don't need licenses because they have treaty rights to fish for these elvers. Now, I've also read in the news that that's controversial because there doesn't appear in some people's minds to have been a historical um, precedent set that this was an indigenous practice of capturing these little translucent tiny eels. So some people are saying it's not a treaty right. Uh, then there's also, this came up, remember last year when I was covering the stories about the, um, the, the problem in the lobster industry off of Nova Scotia and the indigenous fishers fishing under um, a right to fish and a moderate livelihood uh, decision that was made back, a uh, court decision that was made back in the 80s, I believe, that they had a, um, a, a right to make a moderate livelihood off of the, um, the, the lobster fishers. And then there was all this conflict and the warehouse was burnt down and, and people were um, being uh, threatened on the docks and um, the indigenous fishers were having their nets cut uh, when they were, you know, deployed out in the ocean. So there was all that going on. So so that's kind of a, a little bit what I read is going on in the elver fishery as well, is there is, in addition to just indigenous food, social and ceremonial harvesting of the elvers, there's also the claim that they have a legal right to make a moderate livelihood because of that previous court ruling from back in the in the 80s. So this is a super complicated situation over these tiny tiny little eels and it's uh it's another one of these cases like worldwide um where wildlife uh in this case like like a, a marine wildlife like the value of these things on a kilogram or milligram basis like 
rival, if not exceed, a lot of the the illicit drugs that are uh, traded worldwide. Like it's just crazy. Like the pangolin um, in Africa, its scales are are worth like huge dollars. I think it's five thousand uh, dollars a, a kilogram as as well. And so these things are just being you know slaughtered for their scales. Anyways. Um, so there has been a tremendous uh, increase since 2020 in First Nations wanting into this uh, Elver fisheries. Uh, one of the, the um, articles I read said there's been uh, fisheries and oceans Canada has faced a five-fold increase in the last three years of First Nations wanting part of this um, uh, Elver fishery just in Nova Scotia alone. Um, now, here's the tricky part <clears throat> of the way these stories are unfolding. So the fishery is shut down because of illegal fishing, poaching of the fish and the violence on the rivers. So from what I understand, and I've read into these, uh, like lots of different stories, is when the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans Canada issues an order to stop a fishery, a commercial fishery, that applies to everybody and if you're on the river fishing after a ministerial order has been issued my interpretation is, is even if it's an indigenous fisher claiming to be fishing for food social or ceremonial purposes the eyes of the law federal law see that as illegal and those people are arrested the indigenous fishers are arrested so Again, the stories are really, really vague in, in talking about who are they calling poachers? Um, is it indigenous fishers that are on the rivers claiming to fish under FSC rights uh, or um, a right for a moderate livelihood fishery? Uh, the commercially held licenses uh, that are owned by the First Nations, they would like the the non-indigenous fishers if they're ordered to stop they've stopped fishing which is why i said earlier they've asked for compensation because it's a business and they've lost uh revenue by the season being shut down uh maybe all altogether for this year so um so yeah it's it's really it's really hard to figure out when you weave your way through all of these different stories that are being reported by journalists like you know, what's, what are they actually calling poaching? Um, and who are the poachers and who are being arrested? And where is the violence and the threats and the harassments that are taking place? I guess to such a level that Fisheries and Oceans in Canada said they don't want to put DFO officers on those rivers at nighttime with the violence that's going on and, and the harassment and stuff because it's placing their officers at danger nighttime, you know, and, and like hundreds of people from what I gather in some of these stories, like congregating um, on the rivers, there was one place where there was a hydroelectric dam and I guess all the, the baby elvers have congregated around the outfall and the hydroelectric company had to shut the the uh, the turbines down and the dam down because there were so many people um, waiting around in front of the outlets of the dam in the dark at nighttime trying to catch these these baby baby eels so they shut the um, the hydroelectric facility down 
um, for, for safety reasons. So it's, man, it just sounds like there's this total chaos going on. Um, you know, trying to understand what's, uh, what's going on here and, um, you know, and you know, who's, who's poaching. I mean, anytime there's, there's something of this value, um, you know, uh, in wildlife. I mean, there's lots of people from, you know, all types of background jump in and uh, will poach fish and get into the illicit wildlife trade as well, um, just because there's money involved. Now, from what I understand, if they're fish, they're elvers that are poached, uh, they can't access the commercial market as well so they're not getting these four and five thousand dollars per kilogram that the commercial license holders are under canadian law and the constitution um indigenous people that are fishing uh for food social ceremonial purposes it is a traditional right but they're not allowed to sell their catches whether they're salmon or the elvers in this case it's for community um consumption purposes food social ceremonial but their catch under fsc is not reported so scientists managing the fishery have no idea um, how much are being taken under food social ceremonial harvesters in the indigenous community so that kind of complicates management of the resource and the conservation uh, of the american eel so Fisheries and Oceans Canada sets a commercial quota um, for the province of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. That's just around 10,000 kilograms a season. Uh, it's about a $40 million fishery in those two provinces. Now here's the catch in all this kind of chaos that goes on between indigenous rights and, and commercial um, license holders and the season being shutting down and high prices and violence, intimidation and harassment and stuff on the rivers. Um, in 2012, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, also known as COSEWIC, they are the independent government independent body of scientists at arm's length from the government that review the status of uh, plants, vertebrates, and invertebrates across Canada. They make recommendations to the federal government on which species should be classified as endangered, threatened, or special concerns. So in 2012, Kosiewicz scientist recommended and it was accepted the American eel is considered as a threatened species. It was elevated from a species of special concern in 2006. And in a six year period, the scientists said, we now need to consider the American eel as a threatened species in Canadian waters. This blows my mind that all of this is going on for a marine species, uh, aquatic species, that is now considered a threatened species in in Canada. Um, I don't know the numbers and the masses of American eels uh, that are in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick waters. Ten thousand kilograms of elvers um, may or may not, um, you know, be a big deal. But 
the concern was is that when you add on top of all of the illegal fishing that was going on, the poaching and stuff, uh, that basically fisheries and oceans had no way of controlling the conservation of the American eel because the harvest was just out of control, which was in addition to all of the violence and intimidation that was going on at nighttime on the rivers was another reason that fisheries and oceans in Canada said they were closing the season down was because of conservation concerns. It was just literally kind of got out of control. Oh, what a bizarre story. It's just, uh, there's so many facets to it. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's another really unfortunate case in, in Canada that's going on in the resource industries of, um, non-Indigenous license holders being pitted against uh, Indigenous peoples, whether they're for treaty rights or whether they're for moderate livelihoods. Uh, we see it uh, across the country in all types of wildlife and resource, um, you know, uh, conflicts from old growth to lobsters to salmon, uh, you, you name it. Uh, it's just, it's just, uh, it's a really unfortunate situation that Canada's in right now that, uh, you know, that, um, society and governments are working towards reconciling reconciliation with indigenous people and self-government and, um, you know, these various, um, things that are important to indigenous communities. And then on the ground, on the riverbanks, on the waters, um, there's just this immense conflict going on. So gosh, I hope one day, uh, it all gets sorted out. Now, here's another story. Uh, I've been struggling with this one since I first started uh, following it. And it's about the hunting of coyotes with dogs in Ontario. And a, um, an amendment to the legislation on a, on a, in Ontario that was recently open for uh, public comments. I believe it closed uh, last week around 18th or something of May. Uh, don't quote me on that. I don't think public comment is open anymore. So yeah, it's, uh, well, I'll get into it here. So I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around everything that's going on with this proposal and hunting with, with dogs in Ontario and trying to learn. So really, partly what you should take away from here is my thought process in trying to objectively and rationally understand uh, an issue in hunting uh, and trying to understand both sides, trying to understand hunting because it's not a world that I come from. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't feel compelled to, at this point, to pick a side or actually have an opinion. I don't want to have an opinion on hunting coyotes with dogs until I feel it's an informed opinion, um, just because it's just not, not my world. So anyways, what, what's happening is in Ontario, um, there are individuals that hold licenses that allow dog handlers to train dogs in enclosed compounds on private land to train dogs to be able to hunt um, coyotes. Foxes 
and hairs are also part of it. But the the primary issue right now is revolving around um, coyotes. So these facilities are licensed. They're for dog trials. So they go in and they train dogs on how to hunt coyotes, trail the sands, find them, you know, all, all these sorts of things that a hunting dog needs to learn how to do. Outside of that, it is legal in Ontario to hunt coyotes and wolves uh, with dogs. So this proposal by the Ontario government uh, has come from decades and decades of lobbying from the, uh, the hunting community in Ontario uh, to do with the licensing of these trial dog trial areas, these fenced areas on private land. So here's the story. <clears throat> Back in 1997, the Ontario government began phasing out this practice of training dogs uh, in these enclosed camp compounds with live animals, that live wild animals. So they stopped issuing licenses and um, they basically, and they prevented selling or transferring of those licenses. So there was about 60 of them at the time, uh, back in the late 1990s. Uh, the rules were they had to be on private property and they had to be completely enclosed. It was completely legal for the um, trial operators to obtain live coyotes, foxes and hares from trappers and to move those animals into this enclosed area to run the trials on. Some of these trials were competitions, they were judged, um, kind of like the, you know, the, the show events that you see for uh, dogs and stuff. That's, that's part of trialing is, um, you know, seeing the skills of the dog and the handlers and stuff and, and judges and, you know, these sorts of things. Just in addition, like as in addition to sort of the raw training of, of hunting dogs. So apparently now there's only about two dozen licenses for these training and trialing areas uh, in, in the province. And so they want, the amendment is, I believe, to increase the number of licenses, but to also allow the current license holders to sell or transfer those to other places, which currently the law prohibits. So this whole thing <clears throat> has caused a shitstorm in the social media world and in some of the news stories. So the animal rights opponents <laughs> to um, this have been actively asking people to go onto the government's website, um, ex take the opportunity to provide public input and object to um, this amendment to allow the expansion, selling and transferring of these dog trialing areas. They're pretty aggressive like animal rights organizations are in showing people why they should be asking the government to get rid of these things or not allow more of them. Uh, there's some pretty graphic and gruesome videos that are out there on social media showing hound dogs or dogs, the hunting dogs, taking down live coyotes in the field and hunting scenarios. Uh, now, so there's this huge emotional 
part of this, right? Like you, you're probably feeling it right now going, oh my gosh, right? Like you're envisioning a bunch of things. So uh, representatives of um, sporting dogs associations in Ontario, I've read, you know, they've been uh, interviewed for some various news stories about this. Um, they talk about how these trialing operations are run. Uh, so this is kind of interesting and this is why I'm on this process of trying to learn, right? Rather than just sort of like see something, uh, a, a video and immediately form an opinion around it. I'm kind of like, okay, I, I want to, I want to learn more and and so I'm trying to. So these um, trialing and training area license holders, uh, the regulations, the conditions of their licenses specify that these enclosed areas have to have areas that the coyotes can escape to or the foxes. So brush piles, dens, man-made escape um, units. So they build these underground chambers uh, which they um, they bait and the coyotes get used to going when they're in the in the enclosures going in and out of them because they know they can get into these areas and and so they become escape areas so when they put the dogs in and they're trialing and training them to track the coyotes that are inside these these enclosures the coyotes have um, these places that they can escape to um, buried drums buried concrete culverts um, you know they're vented um, so the coyotes apparently learn where to hide. So these areas are large. Uh, one that I read was as large as 225 acres. So, so that, that, you know, that's something I've learned about these. So now the opponents, the animal rights people are saying, but yes, but they're also training these dogs to kill these coyotes inside these, these, um, these compounds. So now I don't know exactly if that's true or not. Uh, if they are, the dogs were literally like attacking and ripping apart um, the, the animals that they're chasing, whether it's a hair fox or a coyote. That, you know, would be what's happening. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is a claim that the opponents to this uh, amendment have put out there. They're saying this is what's going on. So now move this forward. Um, so this is, this has been going on in Canada and I believe it's in some of the Eastern States as well since the late 1800s. So there's an entire hunting culture around hunting coyotes and deer, uh, in places with dogs. Um, and I'm a huge supporter of dog hunting. I'm training one for duck hunting. Um, I fully support, um, hound hunting of bears and cougars. Uh, there's other places of the world that they use hounds to, uh, hunt moose and deer and red stags and fallow deer and all, um, wild boars, you know, all these types of things. They're generally in the, the category of run and bay the quarry. So in the case of bears and cougars, it's their treed. Um, they were used, uh, hounds were used for a, uh, a short period of time in British Columbia for hunting grizzly bears. They were usually bait up, um, you know, on the ground because the bears wouldn't go up the tree. Um, in Scandinavian countries, they use them to hunt um, 
moose and deer in driven hunts. So it's about pursuing the animal so that it, it comes across uh, a path of a line of hunters in, at, at shooting stations. There's also a hunt that takes place in, I think in UK and Spain, where the dogs actually run the animals almost to the point of exhaustion. The animals collapse and then the hunters kind of come up and finish the animal off. Um, that's been going on for like thousands of years, um, that, that sort of practice. Anyways, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways in which dogs are used to hunt, flushing pheasants and, you know, upland game birds as well. But here's a different situation. In Ontario, it is legal to hunt coyotes and wolves. I don't and think anybody probably uses them to hunt wolves. Um, but let's just stick to coyotes, to hunt coyotes with dogs. Again, I've been trying to learn about what's actually happening in the hunting season. Is there that much hunting? Or is this more of a, um, it's a, it's a practice in these penned and trialing areas. Like it's, that's the actual sport. It's kind of like there's hunting and hunters that have rifles that shoot. And then there's competition sport shooters who are just on a range. Um, they don't necessarily go out and hunt, you know, with their competition firearms. So is this trialing, you know, fenced areas, is, is that just a practice in itself of <clears throat> practicing with dogs or is this a, you know, a, a big thing in Ontario where the dogs are then taken and they hunt coyotes all winter? Now, I've spoken to one person that knows a little bit about it, uh, but not, not a whole lot. I'm trying to use my contacts to find out more and more about like what actually goes on in hunting. I just want to know. I don't want to judge. I just want to know. Um, I was told by this person that it's their understanding that for the most part, the dogs chase and bay the coyotes. And then, you know, then the hunters get there and will dispatch the coyote with uh, a firearm. Then the opponents to this whole practice are out there saying these dogs are killing the coyotes. They're running them like several dogs. They're running the coyotes to exhaustion. They're attacking, they're ripping them apart and stuff. And you know, some of the videos that have come out <clears throat> showing this, um, yeah, they're, they're not the greatest videos in the world to look at from an ethical, humane killing perspective. Uh, but I don't know where the videos are from. I, they, they can't verify or they don't say that this is actually <clears throat> Ontario hunting. So that makes me a little skeptical as well, which is why I'm not Form, formulating an opinion on this. I just don't, don't know enough about it. Um, so now kind of where my thoughts have gone on this um, is like, okay, in the hunting world, we pride ourselves <clears throat> with ethical and humane kills of animals as well as trapping. So we talk about the lethality of firearms and placement and practice with firearms and bows and the certified traps that we use in Canada are, are instantaneous kills. Hunters are, um, make humane kills. The death is, you know, very, very quick, whether it's with a gun, a bow, or a certified uh, killing trap or snare. So that's something that we in the hunting community pride ourselves on. They were constantly using as a talking point to the non-hunting community saying, 
yes, we do kill animals, but it's done quickly, uh, ethically, and humanely. Um, you know, for the most part, occasionally things things go wrong and an animal's wounded and, um, you know, tracked down. But But everything that the hunters are doing, the objective is ethical, humane kills as quickly as possible. And we're proud of that. And for the most part, I think everything that takes place in trapping and hunting is these ethical, humane dispatching of the animals that we're after. Now, here's a different scenario. <clears throat> These, the dog now is actually, possibly, is the weapon. It is, it is the tool that's delivering the death. If this is what's actually happening is that the coyotes are killed by the dogs when they, when they get on the coyote. Um, that's how the, fo the fox hunts that are done in the UK that are so controversial that they've actually uh, banned. So they have the little, the, the little hound dogs that chase the foxes um, and then everybody's following on horses all in their regalia and everything. And then <clears throat> the dogs get these little coyotes and, or foxes and rip them apart. Um, so, so now there's a different situation if these dogs are baying coyotes. Um, they're not actually trained to attack them that's that's one thing that's no different than 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 bear hunting other than the coyotes don't go up the tree but the animals just being held at bay um, but if this is the case where the dog's actually the tool the weapon itself um, again I haven't come to any sort of personal judgment on this but what are your thoughts what are your thoughts about you know what I'm telling you here uh, even if you say, hmm, interesting, I don't want to formulate an opinion because, like me, I don't quite know enough about this. I have reached out to people, and I'm trying to get somebody on the show that represents that hunting community to present their side of it. I just haven't been able to nail down a guest yet for, for this. So uh, I do want to talk about this and at, at least get my thoughts out there. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are. Here is, uh, so, so there's a couple things. There's, there's the dog being the mechanism of death. Uh, you know, it's the weapon. So that's one thing to kind of think about. What are your thoughts around that? Is that ethical and humane? Does that align with um, gun bow and killing traps in trapping? You know, I'm not going to say it is. I'm not going to say it's not. But what's going through your mind? What I'd actually be really interested in knowing. Now, the other part of this is, the training and trialing so they're live capturing coyotes and putting them in these pens and the dogs are chasing them around the coyotes can't you know they, they're in a big area um, they can hide you know for the most part what do you think about that um, actually using a live animal to train on I personally do not see a coyote any differently than I would uh, a moose, an elk, bighorn sheep, a mountain goat. Uh, it's all a wild animal. I have nothing against them. I have nothing against people that hunt and trap um, them as well, uh, long as, you know, it's ethical, humane, and respectful, you know, and the animals utilized, you know, you know, great. So, so here's this whole topic of using a live animal to train dogs. It's also done in upland game birds. They use pigeons, they clip wings, they uh, blindfold birds, uh, and they use those to train puppies with. 
Um, so it's a live bird and it can kind of fly and flutter and react like that. And a puppy can try to f figure things out, but you're using a live animal to train uh, a hunting dog. So again, what, what, what are your thoughts around that? Um, and now how would that work if the dog was being used to hunt coyotes or foxes? Now here's another one that, um, kind of layered in here, which is again, why I haven't formed a judgment about this. I've been watching these videos on Instagram of these falcon hunters. And there's this one guy that hunts ducks with them. And he just walks around in the forest, um, like these little like back channels and stuff. And he's got this falcon on his, on his arm. And then it's like, they flush a covey of ducks as they come over the rise. And it's just like, boom, it's like the falcon's gone. And it's like, the ducks hardly get off the water and this falcon has slammed a duck down. And sometimes the falcon's like in the water with the duck, got a hold of it. And it kind of does the, you know, the, the falcon flaps its way, um, kind of like a paddle wheeler over to the shore, drags the duck up, the guy grabs it. And, you know, of course the duck's not instantaneously dead. He's got to like break its neck or whatever. So, but the falcon replaces the gun, the shotgun. The falcon is the weapon. The falcon is the tool of killing. Um, but it's actually the tool of capture in this, this case. It's capturing and bringing the live duck back to, um, you know, to the hunter. I'm sure there's some cases where the falcons killed, you know, the duck right there and then, right? But um, it, it's complicated. It's complicated in my mind in putting all of this stuff together um, to try to get a read on this whole issue in Ontario of training facilities, uh, for the dogs. One of the things the government said that it supports actually expanding and allowing for license tra transfer is they don't ever want this practice to go underground. Um, which Again, I want to talk to somebody in the hunting community about that because if the practice was banned, like then it would become illegal, like dog fighting or whatever to capture these live animals and sneak them into enclosed pens that the government doesn't know about and turn dogs loose in them to practice trialing and training. And it's like, then it becomes a whole illegal activity. Would, would good ethical hunters do that if it was banned? it's illegal to hunt grizzly bears in British Columbia now, but it's like, everybody's not going out, going out the heck with it. I'm just going to go hunt them anyways. If they are, they're breaking the law. They're poachers. They get, you know, charged and everybody thinks they should be charged and lose their hunting license. So, so I wonder about that government statement. It's like, this is one of the reasons they're doing it is because they don't want the practice to go underground. In my mind, that doesn't reflect very well on the people that are involved in this. So I want to talk to the hound hunting community in Ontario to really get a sense of like, was this just government rhetoric or, you know, is this a real concern? People have been doing it, family since 1885 and come hell or high water, they're going to have trialing areas, whether they're legal or not. Um, I, I don't want to believe that because I just don't believe the hunting community is like that. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, what, do, what are your thoughts on this? Write into me about this topic. Maybe you know about it. Maybe you're from Ontario and you do do this or you know more about it or whatever. I'd love to learn. I do want to understand this aspect of hunting in Canada more. Um, 
just so that I can educate myself. Um, I don't feel pressured that I have to think one way or the other about it. I don't want hunting to be impacted and lose our rights to hunt in any way, shape or form and the diversity that it's done across this country because of opponents to hunting and lobbying politicians to change laws and ban hunting. I am in this business to stand up for hunting in Canada. So I want to know more about this, uh, to be able to talk about it, uh, to be able to dispel some of the rhetoric. Uh, and if it's a legitimate form of hunting in Canada that needs to be protected, then, then great. Um, we'll work towards those ends, but definitely need some more, more information, some more insight on, um, what is the truth? What is the truth of Ontario dog trialing? and trial areas and the hunting of coyotes in Ontario. Pass your thoughts on to me. Let me know if you know anything. Um, okay, jumping up to uh, Alaska. So off the coast of British Columbia, there is the Southern resident killer whale population. I think I've talked about these on shows before that are endangered. Um, they, Southern resident population uh, ranges from California to British Columbia. Um, there used to be about 73 individuals. Uh, they're now down to, they figured there's only two dozen of them, and that this um, group of killer whales will potentially be extinct within the next 75 years. One of the big things that scientists have said has is affecting um, the population stability of the southern resident killer whales is the lack of salmon particularly chinook salmon overfishing declines in stocks changes in water temperature and stuff and um, spawning habitat is reducing chinook stocks and there's been all types of things gone in in canada to restrict mostly recreational fishers under the auspices of you know trying to maintain food for the killer whales so an issue arose last year about the commercial salmon fishing industry in Alaska and basically some folks say that their catch their quotas were violating the Canada US Pacific salmon treaty I believe it's called that um, they were harvesting too much um, salmon that were bound for Canadian waters, uh, both to spawn and also would have been the food for the killer whales. These killer whales are also um, residents off the coast of Washington and Oregon. I believe now they are considered endangered species in the U.S., uh, this group of killer whales. Uh, B.C., Canada had the chance to declare them uh, as an endangered, federally endangered species back when Catherine McKechnie was the environment minister and she chose not to list uh, these as endangered fisheries with federal protection. Um, so that's a whole other story. So anyways, in Alaska, um, a U.S. district judge, Richard Jones, um, brought a ruling down recently this spring that brought a stop to the summer and winter Chinook troll fishery off the coast of Alaska's Panhandle. Uh, these are the waters where about 97% of the fish are caught. Um, 
that are bound for home rivers to spawn in BC, Washington, and Oregon. Um, so these are the salmon that are directly keeping the resident killer whale population off the west coast of North America alive. And uh, a U.S. judge made a pretty controversial decision. Apparently the fishing industry in Alaska is appealing the decision, um, but uh, the U.S. district judge said that, agreed um, that the commercial fisheries was uh, violating laws that were protecting an endangered species being the killer whale. It's quite the story. Um, now, <clears throat> I love covering these stories about Canada's love-hate relationship with the Canada goose. So this spring, um, Vancouver area and Stanley Park was back in the news, as were some other areas. Uh, Mississauga, Oakville, Ontario area was also in the news where they are capturing about a thousand geese a year um, and giving them a ride out of town, um, just capturing and relocating them uh, as their nuisance goose strategy. In Vancouver, they were going. They went ahead this spring prior to um, egg hatch of addling the eggs. So they were taking eggs out of the goose nests, freezing them, killing the embryo, putting frozen eggs back in. Uh, the adults would continue to go about their their merry little lives and then go, oh, the whole nest was a dud, and then they would just carry on and um, do their thing. So I asked a couple of colleagues who are experts in waterfowl and all things waterfowl, what do you think about this whole thing of the freezing the eggs and putting them back in the nest to control the goose population in Vancouver area? Because, uh, you know, they poop on the lawn and stuff and uh, that's ruins people's lives. So what one of the experts said is this probably isn't going to do anything. This is not going to deter the, the geese from using this area and nesting in there year after year after year. They're going to come in there. They said, really? Um, what's happened is the geese have lost their fear of people. They don't see human beings in the Stanley Park area as a threat because none of them got a long black stick that goes boom and knocks some of them out of the air. Uh, if you've hunted geese, you know it doesn't take them very long to go, I know what that little grassy bump is down on the ground. I'm not going anywhere near that. Uh, they hear my goose calls, which is a, a signal to uh, avoid me. <laughs> that's, that's the best I can get out of a goose call is, uh, run away, run away. So, so they don't have fear of people. So they see people, they're like, not, not a big deal. Boom. In they go. Here's all this great nesting habitat. So what one of the scientists said is the geese need to learn to have fear of humans, to see humans as a risk to their survival. And so what he suggested is human beings should be going to the nests while the parents were there, pushing them out of the way and destroying the eggs, smashing them right there in front of the parents to see it. And so that over time, the geese are going to be, our nests are getting destroyed by this predator who is now a risk to us. It's a threat. And that would more likely drive the geese to go find somewhere else that doesn't have these things that are a human risk. 
Vancouver has talked about bringing in this remote control plane that's uh, colored orange with big shark teeth on it and uh, geese don't like the color orange and they're going to fly it or like drive it around. It's more like a boat, um, drive it around in the water and scare the geese. Well, that doesn't really, um, I think, pan out to this idea for nesting is they're not going to see this thing as being a threat to their nest. It might chase them around and harass them for a little bit, but at the end of the day, they can successfully raise a brood of, of goslings. They're not going to give a shit about this this orange, scary-looking shark boat thing chasing them around on the water. Um, but uh, humans destroying the nests, um, thwarting their effort to reproduce, and so that the geese can see this was one of the um, one of the suggestions that the experts gave me. Now, one of the other experts looked at what their plan is, and their plan is is they're not trying to get rid of the geese. They're trying to stabilize the growth of the geese population in the lower mainland area of Vancouver. And they said, so the numbers of eggs and nests that they want to destroy, the target is to just stabilize population growth. And this expert said, this is not going to work because this mortality is compensatory. If you want to reduce your problem, the mortality needs to be additive. These are two concepts in wildlife management where um, humans, say hunting, are taking deer and that is not additive to the natural mortality and predation of deer. Therefore, hunters don't actually hurt the deer population. It, we're just part of the overall um, force of nature that kills a certain percentage of the deer every year. Additive is when humans are layering on more than what nature is throwing at a wildlife population, and then that causes a decline. So simply removing eggs and nests to prevent the population from growing they said is not additive mortality. So then this other phenomenon in wildlife dynamics kicks in called density dependence. And so when you're stabilizing a growth of a population, the remaining individuals in this stable population actually have more food, less competition, therefore their survival increases and the size of clutches will start to increase. So if goose population grew and grew and grew and grew there'd be more competition less food survival rates would go down and clutch sizes would go down because life is tough living with a million other geese but what they're doing is they're stabilizing the population actually making life better for the ones that are staying there one of the experts also said um, they have intimate knowledge of um, cormorant calls that were done on lakes to reduce predation on a walleye and they were also using egg addling um, to reduce uh, the cormorant populations and with moderate rates of egg addling um, to stabilize the cormorant population growth didn't work so um, interesting interesting um, thoughts there from some experts on egg addling, uh, which by the way is also endorsed by PETA and the BCSPA as being a humane way of treating animals. Experts are saying it's not going to work. You're going to have a goose population problem no matter what, unless you're actually deterring geese from coming there 
which means geese have to learn that humans are a pain in their ass. A couple episodes ago, I was talking about the endangered spotted owl in the old growth force of British Columbia. And there is a rearing facility that was growing um, offspring for a translocation project into the south um, south west corner of the province uh, around Lillooet in the old growth forest there. There's some controversy around the fact that the government had authorized a bunch of old growth logging right in the very valley where the last known female spotted owl uh, in uh, coastal British Columbia it exists. So the whole plan was is that they were going to rear males and then release them into this valley where they know that the last remaining wild female exists. So they released uh, three spotted owls. One was hit by a train. So they got uh, little GPS collars on them, little trackers. Not collars, but little tags on them. So one got hit by a train, didn't kill it. Uh, It's gone back to the facility, um, rehabilitated. It's doing fine, but it'll probably never be released into the wild. The two that were the two other males that were there were released uh, into uh, the valley where the single female was, and shortly after they were released, they got mortality signals. They went out and they found both of these two males dead. So what that means is now British Columbia's wild population of the spotted owl remains at one lone female. Um, so they don't know what killed the spotted owls, whether it was starvation or, or, or what, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the female that's out there, uh, does not have the ability to reproduce right now. So the rearing program is continuing. Everybody's still optimistic that they're going to be able to, uh, rewild and restore the spotted owl, uh, as long as they cut back on, logging so much old growth on the coast. Okay, my last story is about a um, new provincial legislation that just was passed in British Columbia um, that the legislation supports the Haida Nation's inherent right for governance on the island archipelagos of Haida Gwaii which the name was changed about 10 years ago from the Queen Charlotte Islands back to Haida Gwaii. Uh, Beautiful place if you ever have a chance to go visit it. It's just magical. So the BC government's new legislation basically says they are recognizing the Council of Haida Nations as being the government of Haida Nations on Haida Gwaii and it recognizes the Haida Nation's inherent right of governments and self-determination. So what that basically means is that the Council of Haida Nations is a government on Haida Gwaii that the BC government is acknowledging that they're the ones that have the right to decide about Haida people. Um, They get to govern themselves and that the the Council of Haida Nations is the governing governing body. So there'll be different Haida Nations, but there's the Council of Haida Nations, which is being recognized as like the 
First Nations government on Haida Gwaii, um, like the, the overarching body. Really no different than, than provinces. Uh, you know, we have different regions and regional governments and, you know, and, um, these sorts of things and municipal governments, and then we have a provincial government. So what the province of BC has said is that they're recognizing the Council of Haida Nations as being the governing body on Haida Gwaii. So not quite sure what this means yet. Uh, the lens that I am bringing to this is wondering what's going to happen with the future of hunting and fishing for non-Indigenous people on Haida Gwaii. So I reached out to a person that I know that lives on the island and saying, hey, what, what do you know about the new legislation? And I was just told, far as... He knows business as usual, nothing has been communicated that um, would change, uh, you know, hunting and fishing licensing or rights uh, from the province of BC to the Council of Haida Nations. So that's kind of why I'm following the story and talking about it a little bit. Obviously, this is going to develop probably over the next year. Um, this agreement in legislation, what does it actually mean in practice? Um, and who's going to get uh, what say on what aspects of what goes on in Haida Gwaii. Now, in the BC government's press release, uh, one of the things that it did recognize or acknowledge is that the original constitution of the Council of Haida Nations mandated the Council of Haida Nations to, as the body that would conduct the external affairs of the Haida Nation, and to be the stewards of the lands and waters on Haida Gwaii. So that's kind of a key uh, point for me uh, and why I want to continue to follow this story. Stewards of lands and water um, and mandating the Council of Haida Nations to have, um, to manage the external affairs of Haida people for those things would include wildlife and would include you know, um, how habitat's managed, probably things like logging and development, uh, but also in harvesting rights. So as far as I know, been no changes to provincial hunting regulations for non-Indigenous hunters that like to go to Haida Gwaii, uh, hunt those little uh, Sitka deer, uh, that whatever the bag limit's like 10 of them or something. And uh, there's a few black bear permits that are available on, uh, on Haida Gwaii, but not many. So I will keep you up to date when I learn about this. This is um, becoming a big, big development on coastal British Columbia, uh, seeing more and more of these things that um, I'm not going to, you know, fearmonger or, or make people concerned. Uh, it's just something I'm interested in keeping an eye on in the sense if we're going to ever see the authority for regulating non-Indigenous hunters in a region of the province transfer from the elected governments uh, of British Columbia to First Nations within their traditional territories. So uh, it's something that I continue to follow along closely, um, just trying to learn like everybody else uh, and communicate what's going on around Canada and uh, give you my thoughts and stuff and not try to go too far off the deep end when I'm not completely sure 
about what some of these things mean. I like to talk to you about it. Um, and then I like when folks reach out that do know a little bit more locally about some of these stories. So uh, I think the big, big one is, uh, is definitely this Ontario dog um, coyote hunting thing. I do want to learn more about it. Hopefully I'll get a guest on one of the podcasts here, um, you know, before too long to dig into the truth about, about hunting in Ontario uh, with dogs. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on, going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.